Today on IFS Talks, we have the pleasure of welcoming back Mary Kruger. Mary Kruger is an AAMFT supervisor and an IFS lead trainer. She's the founder of Rimmon Pond Counseling, an IFS-based private practice located in New Haven, Connecticut, which specializes in addictions, eating disorders, and trauma, and has been running for over 25 years. Mary incorporates IFS with her own penchant for the experience, and she has developed a variety of creative ways to work with parts and access self-energy in individual, relational, and group contexts. Mary enjoys sharing her experience in teaching and consulting on a national and international level. She's noted for her humor, creativity, passion, and love of dancing and people. She also offers private therapy, consultations, and workshops. Mary, thank you so much for joining us again today on IFS Talks. So thank you, Mary. Thank you so much for willing to sit again with us for another talk. How have you been and how active in those pandemic days? I'd first like to say I'm delighted that you both invited me back. It's been a very interesting 2020. We uh, have been really busy with trainings and then had to put them all online this year due to the pandemic, mm -hmm. which was really an interesting experience because we had to take a lot of experiential exercises and transform them to be Zoom friendly. Yep. But it's been working out very well. We just completed um, training in Nashville earlier this year. That one was still in person um, on the addiction level two, mm -hmm. uh, addictions and eating disorders and IFS. And um, then we did one in Austin and that one ended up online and that went much better than I thought. It was the first time I did the level two online. It was just a lovely experience um, that we completed that in June. And Good surprise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And looking forward to coming to Lisbon to do the very same training. And now that will be online as well. So I'm excited about that. Where does this special interest in addictions and eating disorders comes from, Mary? I shared a little bit, and I may have mentioned, you know, I, I think I was really born for this. Um, I think it was my destiny. Mm. You know, I do. I believe now when I went through the earlier parts of my life, I never saw where it would lead me. But there were signs. I do believe in signs. I come from like a background that we do believe in that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I think really my first sign was um, when I was a little girl around, I must have been about four years old. Um, I was helping my mother clean the refrigerator because even back then, being an oldest, I wanted to be helpful. I had that helpful part of me. And, and I was taking my father's beer bottles out of the refrigerator and I dropped one on the floor and it broke. And I wanted to help my mother clean it and instead I cut my hand and had to get stitches. And mm -hmm. I've carried that scar for the, my whole life on my right hand. And little did I know what that meant to me, but I felt like that was, that was my first sign that something I was going in some direction. And it was mm -hmm. interesting that the scar has stayed with me my entire life. Yeah. So that was the beginning. Yeah. You mean some special relation with food started back then? That started uh, later. Um, 
I, I can talk a little bit about, you know, my journey. I think maybe I could get a little more specific, but um, yeah, we'd love it. I know a lot of my family history. Um, my family also rolls in that direction. You know, we love history and we love family connection really on both sides. So I know um, my grandfather on my father's side was an alcoholic. And I know alcoholism goes back many generations to the Civil War when they came over from um, Ireland during the potato famine. So my, fa my father's father was an alcoholic. And he also was uh, left in an orphanage for a, lot of, for a good part of his life. And my grandmother on my father's side came from Hungary and when she was two and, and they suffered many hardships and her father died and she ended up having to be what they call a little mother, which meant she had to take care of all the other kids and drop out of school. And she loved education. And so did my other grandmother. My other grandmother, who was my mm -hmm. second mother, um, had to be a little mother and drop out of school to take care of the children. So her parents came from Italy and they were, her father was illiterate and her, um, her mother was educated, but um, she was the illegitimate child of a um, noble person. She had two brothers, and I guess he had a family that he had to educate. But. So there's this long history of like feeling less than in our family, which I consider a legacy burden. And um, there's a long history of um, also being hardworking and valuing education. Mm -hmm. So I think um, I have a legacy of burden and gifts. From, from both sides. And I, I love and appreciate that. Mm -hmm. There's also um, a deep spiritual connection in my family on both sides. And um, even though I suffered many hardships in my life, I, I've always felt many, um, a presence was with me some presence that, you know, I think we call it an IFS, maybe self-energy. Mm -hmm. You know, I refer to it as a presence, something in my soul connected to the, you know, greater being outside of me that I call God. So it's always been there with me, even in the times that I have forgotten, which helps me to appreciate my clients who come in and have no spiritual connection to anything that, you know, sometimes we have so much trauma in our life that we forget that there's anything bigger than us. Yeah. Self-energy, we call it an IFS. Mm -hmm. So anyway, my, my parents married bringing a lot of this baggage in. They married at a young age. My mom wanted to be a... Um, a lawyer. She was a fabulous. Uh, my mother was very talented, smart, and beautiful. And she wanted to be a lawyer. And she had two brothers. And my grandfather, um, I forgot to mention him, he came from Italy when he was 16 with a friend, and he was barely literate. So he and my grandmother wanted all the kids to be educated. This is true on both sides. So my mother was going to be able to go to college, even though we were working class, you know, we always saved our money, you know, for, for education and things like that. My uncles got to be, one got to be a, um, uh, they're the ones that went to school in Burlington. And one is a doctor, was a doctor. And the other 
has like a PhD and was a bio teacher. But my mother, being the girl, had to go to school to be a teacher. And she didn't want to. Um, she wanted to be a lawyer, but my grandfather said she would be an old maid. So she chose not to go to school at all, being the stubborn one that she was. And she much regretted that. And she married my dad, and um, he was in the Army at the time, Korean era, uh, stationed down in Texas. And they, of course, lived with my grandparents, because that's the custom in my family. You know, that when the young people got married, they lived in the household or an apartment or something like that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, they, they got together, and they had my sister and then me. And um, they ended up divorcing when I was five. And this is like a pivotal moment in my life. I didn't uh, know know that this was a part. I was always able to tell the story, but I never really connected with the deepness of it. But um, in those days, they didn't think that you would tell children about, you know, things that were going on in the family. So I just woke up one day and my father was gone. And my mother told me he wasn't coming mm -hmm. back. And in that moment, wow. yeah, it was really an unbelievable experience. Goodness, mm -hmm. yeah. And in that moment, I could feel like my heart ripped out of my chest. Your father was gone. How old were you? Uh, five, just about five, yeah, going into kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And it really shifted me. I feel an emptiness in here that I carried for most of it. And I didn't believe it at first. I um, Of course remember to going in his closet to get his shoes and things to show my mother he was coming back. Oh, so sweet. But he wasn't. So he was gone from the house. And they did divorce because he had a drinking, he developed a drinking problem. I should mention something really important to me in my life that's really, um, really, I think, is fed into my whole idea around social justice, and which I think IFS really supports um, in so many ways. But my dad, my dad uh, worked as a typesetter for a newspaper with his father, and in those days they would set the type print, you know, yeah. to print the paper one by one, letter by letter. Yeah, letter by letter. Wow. And that's what they did for their work. And they were in a union and they went on strike and they brought strike breakers out from California. And I guess they beat them up and did the whole thing and, and they closed down the union. Oh, gosh. So my grandfather and my father were without a job. And that's how he started bartending and his drinking and stuff. Oh. So he started working for one of my uncles. My, these are different uncles now and other people in restaurants and things and trying to support our family because he believed that, you know, it was his job to support the family. So that's how he started his drinking and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. started getting in trouble and stuff. And yeah. so it led to our divorce. It also led to me being very um, oriented to social justice, to supporting workers and things like that. 
So that was a gift and also, um, you know, a burden that was brought to us. So. So, you know, we ended up um, still living with my grandparents. My grandfather was in construction and he built all the houses we ever lived in. And we're, you know, very Italian and all of my cousins live nearby and my aunts and uncles. and Large family. My two uncles lived with us till they were married and we had a three family house and the great grandfather lived upstairs. You know, it was just wild. It was a great time. These are gifts that I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. So, of course, when my parents divorced, my mother, we still lived with my grandparents. And I guess at some point, my mom was very young then. She must have decided she wanted to go out on her own. So we moved to uh, New Rochelle, New York, which is a small city outside of New York City. And it was a horrible nine months. Um, My mom um, really um, struggled to support us. We were sick like a lot that winter. And she ended up losing her job. Um, she had a horrible boyfriend. Um, he was so awful that um, I really think that in that moment is when I began to lose trust in adults. Wow. And I remember sitting at the kitchen table. I was six years old. And he was just being a real jerk, this fellow. Eddie, his name is Eddie, and I still remember it that many years ago. And I just remember um, saying to myself, I'm not going to trust adults anymore, and I'm going to take care of everything. And this part took over like this, what we call an IFS, a parentified part, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really felt it, and sort of like an armor going over my body. And, And it's interesting, you know, looking back, just noticing how, like, Hearts just take over your system through various experiences. So I just remember that happening. And it was just, as I said, it was a very terrible year. Many difficult, horrible things happened. This awful man shot my cat with a, with his BB gun. As mm. one of them. Um, he didn't kill the cat, but it, he hurt the cat. And he was just that kind of pathological, awful, mean person. What ended up happening is, um, and and my mother with her work, you know, um, continued for a number of years. She was constantly being harassed by her bosses and and stuff, you know, um, because she was quite beautiful and we didn't have any kind of protections for women around sexual harassment at work. This wasn't just saying a swear. This was like, you know, calling my mother up in the middle of the night and wanting her to come over and take dictation. It's just a really crazy thing. Oh, gosh. My mother had to quit jobs, you know, because of this, you know. So so what ended up happening is um, I think we were also living in a um, really poor neighborhood at this time, too. That was the 60s? Yeah, it was in the 60s. Mm-hmm. My uncles and my, I guess I think my father, I just remember them all coming to rescue us from there. We left that day and we never came back and we moved back with my grandparents. Yeah, you went back into the protection of the family back to the family again. And that's where I stayed um, for a long time. 
By age seven, when I made my communion, uh, another part took over, and she decided she would be perfect. Mm. Oh, that one. She was going to be holy and perfect, yeah. I've worked this one with Dick, and this is part I call her Holy Mary. Mm. Um, <laughs> I even have a picture of myself So at that age. So sweet. So I, I really, that's what really set the stage for me to be a real uber-old eldest, yeah. So my father remarried um, a couple of years later, and it's hard for me to remember some things because I, I think uh, for a long time I blocked stuff out, um, and I'm not going to go through every detail. Um, but parts of me did block things out. Um, what I did take in is that my stepmother never really liked my sister and I, and um, and so she always made us feel like we were second best in the family, and she had other I have a brother and two sisters from my father's second mm -hmm. wife. Um, yeah. And um, I just remember, um, you know, just loving my brother when he was born. And um, we'd go visit like maybe once every week or two for just the day. And I had a lot of responsibility in those days. You know, I was allowed to um, babysit, take care of little kids, wheel them around the block. Today, they'd be arrested for that. I just remember being with my brother, you know, when he was a baby and having him outside, my little sister and I, and we're eight and six, and to today, we'd probably be in trouble for that. But um, I just loved him. Then my other sister, Colleen, came along, and my sister, Megan, so. But the visits that we had, on one hand, the gift is my father was a really good athlete. And he and my stepmother during the nice weather often took us to swim and mm -hmm. go on hikes and all that cool stuff. So I really took that in. And, uh, my father was a great historian, loved history and all that and sports. Mm -hmm. The downside was he still had a drinking problem. And without going through every detail, there were many episodes of visiting and being um, hearing that we were going for a ride to get the paper. Um, but what that really meant is we were going down to Gus's Tavern. Um, I'm sorry, that was another tavern. Um, going down to the bar and going to sit in the car while Daddy had a couple of drinks before we picked up the paper. So, so that was another um, burden I took on was around really, um, you know, feeling left and having to take care of the little ones. You know, yeah, um, <laughs> left in a hot car, um, being hungry, being thirsty, just really taking that in and worrying about the little kids you know i still remember seeing my brother cry one of the times that we were in the car and um, megan wasn't born yet but colleen was there and she was silent and quiet so that that piece happened and i never told my mother about it because Something else I learned as a child is when they first divorced, my mom asked me just what kids do. What moms do, I mean, is she asked me what we had done with my dad uh, when we went to see him. And this was before he was remarried. And I said, oh, well, you know, daddy took us to Gus's tavern, you know. He took us there and we got to sit on these big stools. And that, I was sitting at the bar, you know, at five years old. Mm -hmm. big stool and um we had cherry cokes and we had um 
potato chips and we played this game and all that. And um, when she heard it, she went crazy and um, she made it that we weren't allowed to be taken in those places anymore. And hence the alcoholic solution is leave the kids in the car then. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Yes. Alone again. Yeah. So I'm going to say another piece here. I worked on this actually with Mike Elkin. I wondered why, you know, as I grew up as an adult, I had this obsession because I've been married and in relationship with so many people with alcoholism. I call them friends of Bill. Mm -hmm. um, but this obsession about what if they drank, what if they drank, what if they drank, and wanting to worry about that. Mm -hmm. I did this uh, piece with Mike, and what I discovered is in that scenario, where I was sitting at the bar that time, the thing I didn't tell my mother is how much I really liked it and that these old men were talking to me and stuff like that. And there was something I liked about the attention um, of being at this bar. And so there was some shame attached. And that's what we got to uh, when I was working with Mike is that I was holding a lot of shame mm -hmm. and that shame, uh, and that was feeding the sort of phobic part and that shame was really connected to I actually liked sitting at the bar talking to these people mm -hmm. these, the, and the, getting the attention. And there was some shame around that. Like, of course. how could you feel good about like being in an awful place like that and having old men pay attention to you when you're a little girl? So um, Mike helped me with that. And I was able to really let go of uh, doing this Sylvia protocol, let go of um, that piece. You know, and I never was able to do that doing other therapies I, I had done and, and other program work. So I'm not going to go through my whole teen years, but I will say that when I was 15, my mother married my stepfather, who was a violent, insane alcoholic. Um, it changed our entire lives. This is another pivotal moment. Um, prior to that, you know, I, other than situation with my father I had like a lot of good things going on I did really well in school I think that was another gift I played music um, I loved dancing but I had quit dancing because my mom couldn't afford the dance clothes but she mm. herself loved to dance and sing so we would dance at home on Saturday we'd clean the house early in the morning and we'd so sweet. dance and we'd sing yeah so lovely um, but when he came on board, it, it changed all of that. We were no longer allowed to be with our mother alone. Oh, gosh. If we didn't do what he said, he would beat our mother up or do something horrible to her. Mm. And um, that's when I started with my whole food thing, actually. Yeah. He was a nightmare. Yes. I forgot to add, I've always had fabulous friends. Not just a great extended family, but fabulous friends. And, um, oh, and just, you know, I grew up in that kind of neighborhood. 
you know, we were all really like it's a working class neighborhood, you know, working lower middle class. So, you know, we lived fairly close to each other and, you know, we hang hang out on the stoop and we played together and we grew up together. And you had your crew. Yeah. And I'm still friendly with people that uh, my first friend that I met when I was three, Robin. Beautiful. If she's listening to this. Hi, Robin. Uh, and I are still friendly today. You know, it's amazing. So I've always had that, and we even have little reunions a few times a year to get together and Precious. talk about the old days, yeah. And we didn't know back then, you know, all, almost all of us were experiencing serious uh, traumas in our families, and it's only as adults, and we did never share that as kids. We just played mm -hmm. and had fun, and as teenagers, we did whatever teenagers do. And, you know, as adults found out that, you know, many of us were experiencing really deep difficult situations in our homes that we never talked about so yeah so maybe that was part of our bond too but you know we did come in an, up in an environment that wasn't easy for most people so I would say that a lot of people had trauma in our neighborhood and there wasn't a precedent for communicating about it no there was no therapies or and actually we wouldn't have gone because you know there would be the shame of that we had our church. I used to go to the church sometimes um, to feel um, our church down the street, St. Gregory, and I'd feel, you know, that beautiful light would come in and, and sustain me through difficulties. And so some, a lot of us did that. You know, we would go to our church. So for that little girl, 15 years old, Mary, things were getting worse. They got a lot worse, yeah. Mm -hmm. I started dabbling with um, dieting a little bit before that because my mom was dating him and I thought I would get rid of him. Um, and this is a very painful thing. My mom uh, had dated a few nice people and I never understood why she ended up with uh, Angelo, his name was, which says a lot also called Tony. He had a few aliases, it turned out. So I don't know how she ended up with this fellow, but um, I decided to try to get rid of him. Mm -hmm. So the first time I met him, he took us out to dinner and I decided to order myself. At that time, I was about 13, going on 14. I ordered myself a drink, mm -hmm. a Manhattan on the rocks, and I ordered the most expensive thing on the menu. And they got me a drink. Love that girl. <laughs> I got myself a drink. And I got myself duck. It was the first time I ever had it. And it didn't, I didn't get rid of him. <laughs> so then I told my mother that <laughs> I didn't like him and I thought he looked like a bookie. You know, people that play the numbers, which it turned out he did like to gamble. So, um, <laughs> So my mother told me at this time that I had ruined all of her relationships, my sister and I, and especially me, and that she wasn't going to let me ruin this one. And if I did, she was going to marry this other fellow, Walter, who actually I wish she did now because he lived up where I live in Connecticut and sent me to boarding school. So I chose not to say anything anymore. But that was a huge stab in my heart. and. Um, you know, I felt betrayed by my mother. We had always been so close. Yeah. And yeah. and the rest of the time home, I just fantasized about leaving and how when I mm. left, 
I was going to, um, you know, just never go back and never be like them, which turned out not to be true. So my stepfather was an end-stage alcoholic, and he um, hallucinated, and he would scream, yell it all night at the walls, and he gambled all of our money away, and he didn't work. He was one job after another, and he had a daughter who came to live with us, and um, he kicked her out um, because she started telling us the true background of his story, and um, she ended up going back to Brooklyn. She had a little boy. She was only two years older than me, like 17, and... Um, she ended up becoming a Jehovah Witness. So um, hmm. having a few more kids, I, I don't even know what happened to her. My sister and I have tried to find her, but we don't know where she is. So hmm. so that went on. You know, I'm not going to go through every detail, but what really supported me through high school is I got myself a job, and I said I was never turning back. So this other part took over. Got myself a job um, and ended up having this really nice boyfriend. Yeah. Old back then? 15 when I started working and I told myself I was never going to, you know, I couldn't wait to get out of there. I just planned to leave. And I had this really fabulous boyfriend, Billy. Oh, I went out with him for a couple of years. Yeah. I should mention, I also had friends that were um, a lot of friends from Cuba. Um, they had come uh, as Peter Pan boys, um, you know, when Castro took over their parents, mm -hmm. Um, yep. sent them here and then some of the parents got out and some died and um, my stepfather didn't like them you know because he was a racist um, but I didn't care they were my friends so I did everything behind their backs yeah, of basically of course. that I wanted the things I knew was right and um, my grandparents helped me and they affirmed that you know he was a bad guy and um, you know helped us out and I left home and went to college um, and at that time I wasn't with Billy anymore. And I ended up being impressed by this much older guy that was in school. He was on the football team. So he, they had red shirted him, I guess is what they call. So he was at least four years older than me. And I was 17 and I ended up um, being date raped by him. Um, a lot of sexual things that he did to me. And that really um, blew my eating disorder into a, a tizzy. By um, the end of the first semester, I probably was 114 pounds, which is very skinny for a five foot seven inch woman. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, I threw from when I was 15 to 22, I just moved in and out of this whole eating behavior, you know, trying everything diuretics. Um, purging, exercising, and, and I was in and out of it. Trying to lose weight, yeah. Mm -hmm. Trying to be in control. In control, yes. My life felt really out of control. And, you know, my dreams of getting out of the house and having it be different were shattered. Um, I was shattered. I felt like I was worth nothing. I started to um, experiment with doing drugs. And this is a part of me. I thought if I tried, you know, um, different drugs that I would expand my mind and find a way out of all of my trauma. Yeah. Yes. But what happened for me is it made it worse. It made it so much worse. So, um, and I did tell myself when I was d 
in this phase, it lasted a couple of years that I would, um, not going to do this forever. I had some manager in me. Right. And that's true. Um, I didn't. By the time I was 21, I, I mean, I was living on my own pretty much. From when I was 17, I went back home to my grandparents and did some work and such. And then I'd go back to school. And um, by the time I was in my senior year, I ended up having to drop out of school because my, um, my mother and father, uh, my stepfather finally divorced. He tried to kill me. And that was my mother's... Um, that was my mother's crossing line. And it was Christmas Eve. He tried to kill me. Um, and um, when he was trying to choke me, some people that were visiting had come back from church and saw him and a big fight happened. He went insane and the um, police had to come and because it was a domestic violence, they didn't do anything. So we left um, and he went nuts and we never went back. We spent Christmas in a Jewish deli and it was the best Christmas we had in a long time. Mm -hmm. My sister, my mother and I, and um, I went back up to my house on the beach and my sister went with my mother to my grandparents and um, back to the grandparents again. Thank, thank, I thank God for them. Yeah. Totally. And then I went back up to Connecticut and I could never come back again because she divorced him eventually and he wanted to come and get me. Wow. You know, he had decided that I was the cause of all of their problems. So I could never move back to New York again. And that's how I ended up staying in Connecticut. It was it was decided, you know, because my grandparents are very like my grandfather couldn't understand a girl living on her own. But it was decided that this was going to have to happen. And that's how I ended up staying here and um a number of months later he broke into the school my mother worked as a secretary at um, a high school middle school in a lovely town rye new york uh, with a beautiful you know it's very upper middle class middle class and he broke into the office during dismissal time and stabbed my mother in the office oh gosh yeah and that's when we found out and she's unbelievably survived it was only a few days wow. before mother's day yeah she survived thank god yeah Mm-hmm. She survived and um, she uh, um, she still divorced him and she went to court and she found out that he had killed his first wife. He had lied and said something happened to her, yeah. He had killed her and served two years in jail for manslaughter. And for what happened to my mother, he gave, he got 30 days suspended because he went into delirium tremors from his alcoholism. Uh, and he had to go to the hospital. So they counted that as time served. And he got exiled from Westchester County and five years probation. That's all he got. So my mother said, a number of months later, the first battered women's shelter opened. And this was my interest area also is uh, domestic violence. Um, and those 
parts and uh, she would have gone there if she could have and but that wasn't there for her so so that's what happened so i dropped out of school and you know this is when all the trauma really started happening i'm i spent a, another year partying and my eating disorder and then i decided to straighten everything out i was bartending now bartending waitressing and it was a crazy life you know i've been through so many i don't want to go through every story but hell's angels came in it was you know i was i was developing to be a really tough girl and um so i decided to straighten out and i started doing um you know natural foods getting into all the granola stuff and all that and began to straighten my life out and went back to school still had to bartend and waitress but now i had a focus and my sister came to live with me with her baby and the 20s were hard um but they were also informative yeah. and um yes my trauma really showed up more when i stopped partying and stopped with my eating disorder behavior um and that's when i started developing like panic and anxiety and such so when you stop your eating disorder you said the trauma my other parts showed up <laughs> yeah yes makes sense the firefighters weren't on board anymore and right 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 yeah so all that pain they were keeping you from sounds like it started to come through right but in the forms of numbing dissociation i mean it was pretty severe wow there's some part of me knew that if i went to see a psychiatrist they might put me in a hospital so i didn't want to do that so okay. yeah so mm -hmm. So I started out with a therapist and he wasn't very good. And how old were you? Probably about 22, 23, 23. It was when I first went to therapy and so it wasn't a good experience for you. I think what was good is I got to like tell the story, but it was just a part telling a story and I didn't tell okay. all the story. Of and um this person didn't have any self energy they just had a therapist part up the whole time i was there and the only thing they ever asked me about was why i was always late which oh. is not what we would do in ifs if he had been only curious Never. he could have found out a lot of more course. about me and he would have understood i was late because i was too much of a caretaker and doing too many things in my life so he never really got it and i never told him about my eating disorder i never told him about the drugs I never told about my panic attacks. So we hadn't we hadn't any trust. Yeah. No. Yeah, so I, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not going to go to my whole 20s but you know I I've been in and out of relationships. There was one really good one for four years um and um uh we remained friends when we broke up and um But I was in and out of a lot of bad relationships all and even this person had an issue but every guy that I was with was you know um had some sort of substance abuse problem some kind of addiction and I had a lot of codependency issues going on and just looking for that attention some part of me you know and I'd stick with it stick with it so um a number of years later I got introduced by this fellow that I broke up with to the Al-Anon program um and it was because I was now dating someone else and he had a drug problem 
and he was uh, violent and I, I wanted to get out of that relationship. And so this other friend introduced me to Al-Anon ACOA and that's when I first experienced what I call that self energy other than my spiritual experiences. I walked into a room, I felt people that were just like me um, that had gone through it and suddenly the impact of what addiction had done to my life all came came flooding into me. Yeah. I mean, I had entered this room thinking I was a flawed, broken person. All these things happened because of me and how awful I was. Yeah. And that's not the truth. It all began to make sense. And that was really when I began to become interested in how addiction had impacted my life. I got married a few couple of years after that um, to my first husband. He's a Vietnam vet. I had known him for a number of years. Um, a part of me thought I would be safe now with him. Yes. Mm -hmm. I had known him, you know, for a number of years, but by that point he had also developed an alcohol problem. So we had my son, John, and, and he had two children from his first marriage. Lovely. They're lovely, lovely. I love them. I'm so grateful for them. I feel they were a gift in my life. Mm. And we have my son, John, and, you know, my first husband drank all the way um, till my son, John, was almost four. And, um, um, but I started going to marriage and family therapy school then when we had John. I dropped out of, uh, I didn't, I took a leave from my job at the time. I forgot to mention I got this fabulous job at a Fortune 500 company, 100 company yeah. that I worked in. And that helped me a lot too. I, someone took um, interest in me and hired me. I was called a high risk hire and I ended up doing really well in this work. But when I had John, I took a leave and decided to go back and do family therapy. So I did, and I started hearing about Dick Schwartz. You know, um, when I graduated, I heard about Dick when I was studying my family therapy degree. You know, and that was interesting doing my genogram and starting to begin to see more connections on legacies of addiction and mm -hmm. domestic violence and various things that went on. So I, I um, heard about Dick in the supervisory role, but then I started when I graduated to, um, I had my own practice. I worked in a rehab for a while for substance abuse um, and started a practice on the side. Um, I also started a program for substance abuse outpatient for my internship that I was at. Um, so I was really now really interested in working in this area and um, and I was supervising students for Ralph Cohen and he met Dick at a conference. And he decided he was going to have a training come to um, Connecticut and it was the first one on the East Coast. And just before that I had been introduced by Ralph to the Meta Frameworks book and the idea of looking at like the whole picture of the system, which included the inner system that he was using with the students. So I signed up for the training on a lark because Ralph said it and I thought maybe it would be interesting and fun. And I heard about this famous guy, Dick Schwartz. And I get to the training and I'm late, of course, because I told you about my late thing. And there's Mike Elkin waving at me. <laughs> you know, I didn't know it was Mike Elkin to come sit over there because there was an empty seat. That's how I met Mike. Beautiful. And then, yeah, and it was great. He was so wel welcoming. He was the program assistant, one of the program assistants, it turned out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Dick was sitting over in the 
chair in an, in a, well, Dick, you're going to hear this, but I've told him this anyway, a blue shirt and a work shirt and jeans and hanging out. And I was like thinking, oh, wow, he looks really boring. Is this the famous Dr. Schwartz? And oh, no, I've signed up for six weekends. But I never left. I never left IFS since then. And um, when I heard about the model at first, you know, I, I didn't, I had skeptical parts too, but I heard that it was systemic. Um, I heard that it had a, a spiritual component to it. I heard that it, um, we could unload trauma with it. And I was thinking, these are all the areas I've been stuck mm -hmm. in my life and the areas that I'm stuck with my clients. And I got really interested. And from the, the first few weekends that I took the training, I started integrating the work with my work I do with addictions and eating disorders. So. So that's what happened. And, and um, you know, I ended up, I, I was married to my first husband for um, almost 25 years. And we ended up divorced. Um, he, he got sober, by the way, I should mention, um, pretty early in our marriage. Good. Mm -hmm. We didn't divorce for that reason. Um, you know, he had yeah. untreated PTSD and... Um, okay, yeah. Vietnam. Yeah. And didn't really get treatment for it until later. So it chipped away. So, so anyway, I should mention that. Um, both of my husbands are friends of Bill. That means they're members of AA. And I've been in mm -hmm. Al-Anon for about 30 years. And I incorporate, you know, 12-step um, work with um, my addiction trainings. Now, that doesn't mean everybody uses 12-step work or that's the focus of the training. But I have found that it's a good adjunct to working with addictions and eating disorders. And so I have incorporated, you know, some of that into the work I do with um IFS and addictions, but also have developed my, some of my own stuff, you know, it's really been powerful. I mean, we've made shifts and transitions with folks that other people gave up on using this model. I wait for the days for them to do some uh, research on it, you know, rather than uh, what we report out in the field. Did you have a time in that comprehension of IFS where you put the lens on your own self and your system, what all that you had been through? I imagine you did some really deep work with the model on all of your parts and the trauma that you've shared. What was that like and how did you shift or change or how did it feel for you? That's a really good question. Um, I forgot to mention that, you know, I was held up at gunpoint um, when I was in my, my uh, master's program in the school building. Wow. So I was held up at gunpoint and um, I had been doing other therapies and such then. It was before IFS and um, my 12-step stuff and had been, that day I remember feeling really I guess the word I would have used then is integrated and feeling really good. And then that night I got robbed and it sort of undid everything and, and stayed with me in my system. Like this whole idea about the world being a safe place that was gone. When I started to, and so I used a lot of manager skills and such, and it wasn't until a few years later that I was introduced to IFS that when I began to work in the model, it changed things tremendously. Like intuitively I knew 
about moving my body because that's where we hold trauma. And I had taken dance and yoga up and things like that prior to IFS, but yeah, um, yeah. it was stuff was still stuck there. And um, mm. so when I started to work with an IFS therapist, because for me that worked better than just the training program. Um, mm. And I did some really deep work with my IFS therapist. We worked together for ten years, and I could physically feel. Um, a shift going on in my body. I could feel that it wasn't in my head anymore, like cognitively trying to manage my way through life. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, which is what I was doing prior to that, like cognitively, like managing my way through life with skills I had learned. Mm-hmm. But with IFS, I was able to heal what happened to me and to um, go back to who I was, like originally, and feel yeah. whole without having to think about making myself feel comfortable in a room. Um, but it was a complete energetic experience, but it happened over time, not just overnight, because I've had a lot of work to do, and I still have work, but that combined with doing um, some of the retreats that were offered, you know, by Susan McConnell, she does the somatic retreat, and um, I did a number of other retreats working with some of the other IFS people that are trainers now, we all did a lot of work together, you know, um, we spent weekends uh, with Dick, and um, even after our level, what was basic back then. Um, so I, I, what I would say is, um, I really wanted to have the experience myself and I would never have used it with clients if I hadn't used it on myself because I wanted to see if it worked. So I always say that with my clients, I will never, uh, try to get them to ride a horse that I haven't ridden. You know, I want to make sure it's, it's going to be workable. So I feel like I can with confidence say that this is something that can help people, you know, totally. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, Mary, how much do you still get triggered or still heal when working with uh, addictions and eating disorders? Um, I can't ever say that I'll never be triggered because there's always something new that enters the room. Um, what I can say is, um, I don't get polarized with people's parts anymore. One of the things I was taught when I was a beginning clinician was that, um, well, I was taught two different things. My mentor used to say that, um, if we weren't getting anywhere with something, there's no such thing as resistance that, um, it means the therapist doesn't know what to do. But today I know from IFS, it means that the therapist has parts up. So I don't believe that when clients uh, are not quote, you know, progressing that anything is wrong. I believe that there might be a polarization going on with my parts and theirs, or maybe there's a polarization coming from the outside. So, um, I always have triggers coming up. I won't say I don't, But what I have is a familiarity with those triggers so I can get them to step back and let me be in the room. And that's one of the focuses of the work that I teach people in um, the level two is how to work with those triggers that come up because it's a really difficult population to work with if you are not really attuned to your parts. Totally. Um, It's a challenge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit more about that? Why it's difficult if you're not tuned to your parts with that population specifically? Because um, it can be scary 
to have someone come in and have them engaging in extreme addictive or firefighter behavior that can cause them physical and emotional harm or harm to others. So it can put the fear into people. And when fear is there, it can cause us to either give up on the person, which feeds into their hopeless parts, or to get really managerial with them, which makes their behavior escalate, or to get caretaking with them, which only serves to enable. So if we don't work with those parts of ourselves as a clinician, and if we don't can't recognize them, our work is not going to be as um, successful as it could be, mm-hmm. as um, effective. Um, I think it's the key to being able to work. And even before IFS, I knew people that had what we call self-energy that could work really well with addictions and eating disorders because they had a great self-depart relationship and understood those parts. So there's something uh, very important in that self-depart relationship coming from the clinician, not just the client's self-depart, but also ours. Of course. Yeah. Makes sense. What's your relationship like now with some of those firefighter parts within you, the, the um, eating disorder part and the, the addiction part? Have they shifted or changed roles? Yeah, I, and well, one part that changed for me is a vigilant part. Um, and she's become more awareness and The eating disorder part, you know, prior, my eating disorder was really trauma-based. So um, I would say that I just developed a great interest in being a really good cook. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm a really good cook. And that started in my early 20s. So So she's there unburdened as a really good cook, as a nurse. Exactly. Yeah, and enjoying food and seeing food as a really positive thing. And if it wasn't trauma-based, it would be what, a legacy-based? Well, it could be a legacy burden or it could be that I learned disordered eating behaviors, you know, with bad eating habits from my family or food deprivation. I didn't have that kind of thing. I had food deprivation, as a matter of fact, when I lived on my own for a short period of time, but pretty much I became a... um, yeah, good cook. And and body image wise, I would say that I would be not truthful if I didn't still sometimes scan my body and stuff, stuff like that, um, to see how it, it's looking and all that. So I'm still conscious about that. But I guess I'd say that's more about being physically fit today. So, um, you know, so I continue to do um, move my body and do things like that. So that aspect is transformed. When I was going through some really difficult times with both of my husbands, um, I noticed the part coming back up chattering a little bit, but because I have an awareness of parts, I could have a dialogue with it and I didn't have to act on it. So I noticed um, the part going, you're fat, and that's why this is happening to you, and this is why this is happening, and maybe you should lose a bunch of weight or do something about it, 
And then I have a little dialogue and I'm like, mm, I hear what you're saying, but let's check and see what's going inside. So now I use it as a barometer for something deeper going inside, which is what I do with my eating disorder and addiction patients also. When that part shows up, it has a message for us or an intention. It doesn't mean we have to act on it. So, so that there's that piece. Um, and as far as the addiction goes, I wouldn't say that I was addicted to drugs. Um, I would say I was abusing them. Um, I yeah, don't use obviously. drugs today. Um, I'm not on the drug thing. I, I'm not into the idea of doing hallucinogens. That's just me. Um, um, it's just not in my life. Um, and alcohol, you know, I'm Italian, so I drink a little wine now and then. And that's pretty much it for that stuff. Um, that just didn't feel authentic for me. I didn't. Didn't feel like anything I wanted to be doing. So my firefighter energy mm -hmm. in there shows up in like just liking to socialize, I think, because that's really what it was mm -hmm. about. I think it was about socializing and connection. Connection. So, yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Mm -hmm. And how are you doing now, Mary? Are you happier than ever nowadays? I am. Even in the middle of this terrible stuff that's going on this year, I feel that I do feel that I feel it. I feel what's happening for people. I feel what's happening for all of us. I feel compassion. Yeah. And I feel that but I also feel joy and what I do feel is I believe that you know we're heading in a better direction that this is just a, a planetary shift yeah so Mary such a privilege to sit with you and witness such a challenging but simultaneously beautiful journey. Thank you. So thanks much again for having us. I feel so touched, grateful and inspired by your wisdom and your courage sharing all that you shared. Many parts in my system were healing as well as you were sharing your family and developmental journey as a child, an adolescent and a young Mary so much wisdom in all that you shared thank you so it was really a, a joy to be here with you and teacher and um, my hope is that we can keep meeting and sharing this model beautiful model our work and our lives thank you so much thank you i look forward to meeting everybody in the next training too from portugal yeah yeah we will do that Thank you, Mary. Thanks. Thank you so much for being willing to, to come here and share with us. Open up. I respect so much what you bring to the model with your experience and your wisdom and your way. Thank you. Well, namaste, as they say. Namaste. <laughs> <laughs>